All right, so how did it feel? Huh? Feel good? Wow. Sisters, how did it feel? It was nice. Isn't that interesting? This is the third command. So fascinating, isn't it? Now, one small clarification. Here the grammar is singular. So you're going to find in some of your translations it's addressed specifically to the prophet, peace be upon him. That's an interpreter's or the translation's interpretation. Um, one way to read this is that this is for the prophet, peace be upon him. The other way to read this is that this is the sunnah of the prophet, peace be upon him, thus upon us. But think about this. The third command after your relationship with Allah, the first three your relationship with Allah, your third is your relationship with other believers. And what is this telling you to do? Seek out the good of what they're doing. Because what does shaitan put in your mind? Look for the flaws. Okay? So one, it's telling you to seek out the good of what they're doing. And then express reward for it. Jazakumallahu khayran. Barakallahu fikum. May Allah reward you. May Allah bless you. So this, I want you to start doing regularly. Try to seek out the good that someone else does and express reward for Allah, reward from Allah for it. You don't have to do it every single time. Right? Just like the Prophet says, peace be upon him, if you want to spread love among each other, what should you do? Give the salam to everyone. The hard part is that it's become so much part of our culture that it's just become an obligation. But really think about what you're even saying when you're saying assalamu alaikum. What are you saying? Peace be upon you. But assalam is also one of the names of Allah. You're making a du'a for them. Make the salam, make the peace of Allah be upon you. Every time you say that, you're making a du'a for a person. Right? Now, here, you're saying something different. Based on their actions, look for the good in what they do, and express Allah's reward for them. Okay, and now look at what you're getting. There's four things in this ayah. We'll look very briefly. Number one, gardens, many which rivers flow. So there's gardens. Now, when do you usually have a garden? When you have a palace. And the gardens are giving more beautification. And then you're going to have fruits. And you can read this two ways. One, like the bananas that you have here, the oranges that you have here, Syria, the, or the mangoes you have here, you're going to have a heavenly version of it. You're going to recognize it. But another way this is read is you're going to see the fruits of your labor. Right? We have that metaphor in English as well. That, oh, Allah Ta'ala is giving me this palace because of this specific thing I did in dunya. You're going to recognize it. Allah Ta'ala is giving me this huge forest because these specific things that I did in dunya. Maybe your paradise is something else. I would ask this question to seventh graders, and they'd say stuff like, yeah, my, my paradise is Halo 5, and then, you know, or I'd take like these two planets and crash them into each other. Whatever your paradise is. Okay? And so, maybe your paradise is a lifetime supply of Cheetos. But the point is that uh, you will see Allah Ta'ala is giving you reward for what you've done. Yes? What was the second one? The first one was uh, gardens in which rivers flow. And the second one is the fruits. So the fruits will be actual, the fruits of paradise, as well as the fruits of your labor. Right? That's, I mean, one of the joys of being a teacher is you see the fruits of your labor right in front of you. Right? or being a farmer or a gardener. You see the fruits right in front of you in terms of the investment you put in people, etc. The third thing, <coughs> the third thing is pure companions. Now this is interesting. A question that's brought up is when you look in, for example, Surah Al-Waqi'ah, Surah Rahman, it'll speak about these fair maidens of, of paradise, and then people ask, well, what do women get? Okay. This first reference to the pure companions is both. 
right? It's gender inclusive. So before all the other mentions, this is one. But even then, it's fair to say that the Quran is speaking to a particular audience. What's the, uh, the first audience of the Quran? It's the people of Arabia, right? I mean, the first audience is actually the Prophet, peace be upon him. But it's the people of Arabia. Imagine you lived in Bangladesh. Anybody here Bengali? Okay. So in Bangladesh, you might have four months, eight months of monsoon season. Okay. Are you going to want gardens beneath which rivers flow? You've got plenty of that. So what I'm saying is that even, keep in mind, that the literal, we take as literal, but Allah Ta'ala is speaking to this audience of Arabs. Okay. And they were a patriarchal society. Yes? Um, could you just backtrack like a sentence before? Um, oh, um, so when they say, they will say, we have been given this before because yeah. they were provided with something like that. Um, could you just explain that a little bit? Sure. It sounds um, a bit ungrateful to me. I don't know if this is the correct understanding. Well, I mean, two ways it's read is that you will, in paradise, you're going to have these fruits and think, wow, I'm eating this orange. And I recognize it's an orange because that's what I had back in my dunya life. But it's a heavenly version of it. Right, so that's one way. You're going to recognize it. And another is you're going to recognize the fruits of your labor. That Allah Ta'ala is giving you this. You're recognizing Allah Ta'ala is giving me this because of this specific thing I did in dunya. Right, so for example, what's the reward for saying SubhanAllah one time? A tree. A tree, how big is a tree? The tree is so big that a horse would have to run full speed for something like 65 years to, uh, to go with its full circumference. So I did a measurement of that at one point, imagining like a racehorse, and it's basically a tree whose, whose trunk is about the size of the city of Chicago. That's one tree for one SubhanAllah. Yeah. SubhanAllah. Okay, so the third is going to be these pure companions. And the fourth is going to be eternity there. Okay? Now think about these four things. Every big project you work on in life is going to be for one or more of these four things. Like think about the career that you plan to have. If you have to plan and you have a career, it's for one or more of these four things. Gardens beneath which rivers flow, ownership. To be able to own your house, your car, etc. See the fruits of your labor. Companionship, get married and to have eternity. Okay. And so what are we saying? All of these things you will say with Allah. Okay. Now, moving from there, that's the third command. I want every single one of us to really try to internalize this idea that we're going to fulfill these. The next command doesn't come for another 80 ayahs. Okay. So really try to internalize this. Okay. And think about it. If you're looking for the good in what people do, what is that going to do to your own brain? It's going to make you much more positive. Okay. And then it's going to bring you closer to people if you're wishing reward on them. Okay. Now, this brings us to Ayah 26. One of the criticisms that the Prophet peace upon received, especially in Medina, is what kind of book is this? Look at the way you speak about Allah. Allah is so big and so majestic. And your book is talking about ants and bees and bugs. Okay. That's a contradiction. And the response that's given to them is that it is not beneath Allah. Allah is not shy to speak about these things, even if they're as small as a bug, or anything even above that. Okay. It is not beneath him. So in his majesty, 
it does not contradict his majesty to speak about even the most insignificant things. And if Allah is speaking about an insignificant thing, then what does that mean? It means it's significant. Right? What are some of the different types of tiny things that Allah Ta'ala speaks about in the Quran? Sorry? Spiders, yes. What else? Ants, what else? Bees, what else? Birds, what else? Humans, sure. Sorry? Okay, so like figs, olives, yes. Okay. Very good. <clears throat> and so what are we saying then? That in creation, nothing is insignificant. At the very least, because Allah Ta'ala created it. And what else are we saying? So then the ayah goes further. Those who believe, they know this is all haq. They all know, they know this is all truth from Allah. And there's another deeper lesson here. One of the big blessings of our tradition is on the one hand, we have scholars that are inheritors of the prophets, peace be upon them. Right? You've heard this teaching, right? When a scholar is working to become a scholar, they're embracing a gigantic responsibility. And then we also have something else. I can be someone who has no knowledge of anything, and I can still understand the deen at a deep level. And I can still possibly get to the top level of Jannah. You're not going to find that with any other religious tradition. Can you say that like sentence again? Okay, so on the one hand, we have the scholars who are the carriers of the tradition. They're the inheritors of the prophet, peace be upon him. And at the same time, on the other hand, I could be someone who has no education at all. And I can still understand the deen at a very deep level. I can still get to the top level of paradise, inshallah. So in some traditions, you'll have a class of priests who own everything. In other traditions, you have a class of scholars who are the superiors above everyone else. For us, the scholars are the custodians. And so you can have two people standing next to each other in prayer. And their prayer may be of same value. Naturally, that there's a teaching attributed to Imam Malik, and then also it's related to a hadith that, you know, that he'll trust a scholar, or you know, that a scholar will be stronger than a thousand worshippers and such. But the point is, you still have this opportunity. Okay. This is another lesson taken from this ayah. There's also another point taken from this ayah. It says, those who reject ask, what does Allah mean by these metaphors? Okay. Now, this is not you and I asking what does this metaphor means. When someone rejects, they're saying, I already don't care. Okay. So this is something you see on the internet quite a bit. You'll see those people who are basically atheist fundamentalists, right? Atheist preachers, that all they do is they make fun of religion. Okay. Like they try to give you the point that you have to be stupid to follow religion. That's basically what you see in this aisle. Okay. Those who reject are saying, what does Allah mean by this? They're already rejecting. They don't care about an answer. Okay. They just want you to feel stupid. And then what does Allah say? This is also very fascinating. He misguides many by this, or he lets many go astray by this, and he guides many by this. By what? By these metaphors or by the Quran itself. Think about this, that the Quran may be used to misguide people. How? It could be that, that it's, it's a conscious mistranslation. How else? Yes? They have the mindset going in that they're just going to try to disprove everything. Yeah, maybe they have a completely sour intention. 
Right? This is where we see the terrorist groups coming from. I'll give you an easy way to, to refute the terrorist groups. Very easy. Okay. If I believe that if I send you to perform a suicide bombing where you are destroying yourself and a bunch of other people, that you're going to go straight to paradise, shouldn't I be first in line? If paradise is better than anything? Right? That would be like me building a masjid and telling all of you to pray in the masjid, but I'm not doing it. See what I'm saying? That if I'm saying that you are guaranteed paradise by blowing yourself up in this particular crowd or this particular site, but I'm not doing it myself, and I'm saying paradise is better than anything we can even imagine, what to think of anything on this earth, okay. then I should be first in line. This is what the Sahaba used to say about the Prophet, peace upon him, for example, in the Battle of Ohad. He used to run faster into battle than everybody else. Okay. And think about how much older he was than everyone else. Okay. And that's a point to think about when we hear about things like terrorist acts. Okay, now, taking this a step further. This is at the bottom of 26 now. A point we made last time, which is, well, I guess we're not going to finish everything, but it's a good place to end. So, Allah Ta'ala says at the end of Ayah 26, he does not misguide anyone except for the Fasiks. Now, a Fasik, in most of your translations, will say rebels or transgressors. A metaphor of the Fasik is imagine you have a river, and the water of the river is going beyond the banks of the river. So you're crossing your boundaries. So now we have a fifth type of person. The first is the person of taqwa. The second is the person of kufr. The third is the person of nifaq. The fourth is the secret Muslim. We need to give it a name, secret name. And the fifth is a fasik. A fasik is a shameless rebel. A fasik is worse than a hypocrite. At least a hypocrite doesn't want you to know that they're a hypocrite, if they know they're a hypocrite. They still have some shame. A fasik has no shame. They're going to advertise their sins. Like, you never advertise your sins. A fasik doesn't care. And then in I-27, we have three attributes of a fasik. Number one, they break their pact with Allah after confirming it. And we'll explain that in a second, inshallah. Number two, they split what Allah has ordered to be joined. So number one, they break their pact with Allah after, after accepting it or confirming it. Number two, they split what Allah has ordered to be joined. And number three, they cause corruption in the world. So the first pact we made with Allah... This is in Surah 7. We're not going to look at it right now. Surah Al-A'raf. Before all of us were born, before any of us were even in this world, pre-eternity, Allah Ta'ala brought all of us before him and asked every one of us, am I not your Rabb? And every one of us said yes. And then it says, now on the day of judgment, you can't say that you didn't know. And so then, people take from this the idea of the fitrah. That everyone is hardwired to have a belief in Allah. Everyone is innately good. Yes, sir? So 
that's interesting. There's a narration, I doubt, I don't know if it's strong, where Ahmad apparently remembers it. None of us remember it. So we trust that it happens, but it's in the Quran. Yeah. I mean, think about what do you remember? What do you remember from age one? Yeah. So this is age negative. Yes. If we remember like really just kind of like, like if we were able to see the unseen, like there would be no doubt, would be like really attached. Possibly. Could be. You just you just know. That'd be pretty amazing. Yeah. Okay. So. One understanding of you're breaking your pact with Allah is you're breaking this natural design that you have to turn to Allah. Good. Splitting what Allah has ordered to be joined, this is you're breaking your relationships with your family. We're not talking about divorce here. We're talking here about you have no reason to disconnect from the sibling of yours or this relative of yours. You're just upset, and you cut them off. Yes? The first one is, is breaking that first pact that you had with Allah before we were all born. The second one is you're breaking your relationships without justification. You might have someone in your family who's super abusive, and for your health, you might have to separate. That's a separate issue. And divorce is legal in our tradition. Sometimes a husband and wife are just oil and water. Here we're talking about breaking relationships without justification. Anytime you've broken a relationship with a friend or a family member, making your intention at some point to fix it. Maybe you're just not ready right now. Yes? Okay. And number three, you're causing corruption in the world. This is read a few ways. One, you're committing sins with other people. Every one of us commits sins, and we should all see Toba, and you should hide your sins. When you commit a sin with someone else, that's much bigger. So what are we saying? The key to misguidance is misconduct. And so that's what we're taught. Every time you do a bad deed, what should you do? You should, you should follow it up with a good deed. You don't want that to become your habit. Just like we said about lying. You might lie, 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 and then Allah Ta'ala stamps you as a liar. And then you become a pathological liar. So every time you do a bad deed, at the very least, say, stop to the law. But try to follow it up with a good deed. Because the key to misguidance is misconduct. So what are we saying? People who are actually misguided, you will find problems in their character. Where the problems are, Allah knows best. So ultimately, we won't know. We'll find out on the other side. Okay, let's stop actually right here. Although we still had another 10 eyes to go through. Maybe sometime in the future we'll do it. Any last questions in the last few minutes? Shall come back to Sorry, Ken. Yes? Sorry. Um when it comes to the Quran, either misguiding or guiding, so for example, like somebody comes non-Muslim and they open up the Quran with like intentions to find like a mistake in the Quran, but then they end up like converting. That happens. So, yeah, so that happens. So technically, their intention was a their intention right. deeper. Actually, you, you raise a really good question. This is a good. Uh, this is a good thing we can address really quickly about du'a. So one point we made about du'a, right? It was that tough exercise. Figure out your need and then make all your du'as with that need. A second point to think about is the difference between the prayer of the heart and the prayer of the tongue. Okay. And this will help make sense of your point. So let's say I have to get to work at 9 o'clock, and I'm running late. And I'm driving as fast as I can, and I'm saying, Ya Allah, give me to work in time. Give me to work in time. Give me to work in time. Okay. Let's say I get to work at 9. 
Was my dua answered? No. I was supposed to be there at nine. Oh, you're I mean, fair enough, but let's say, but my focus is on my dua. Yeah. Uh, looks like it was answered, right? Okay. Why did I want to get to work on time? So I won't get in trouble, right? So let's say I'm driving as fast as I can. Yallah, give me to work on time. And I get to work at 9.10, but I didn't get in trouble. Was my dua answered? Yes. The dua closer to my heart was answered. The dua of my tongue was not answered. Okay? Why don't I want to get in trouble? So I don't get fired. So let's say I get to work at 9.10, and I get in trouble, but I don't get fired. What's my dua answered? Closer to my heart, it was answered. The dua of my tongue was not answered. What are we told about the dua of your tongue? Either Allah will give it to you, or he will remove a burden from you, or he's going to give it to you in paradise, and you wish all your duas were given in paradise. But the dua of your heart is always answered. And so the point is, anytime you're making a dua, you're interpreting what your heart is really seeing. So that person, your example, they probably thought they're trying to disprove the Quran, but maybe deeper than that, they're actually searching for truth. Right? And so think about this with all of your du'as. What are you really seeking? Like, if you want an A on this assignment, maybe you want this A on the assignment because you want to get an A in the class. So you're really asking, yeah, Allah, give me an A in the class. Or maybe it's because you want to get into the, the whatever college or university or professional program. Or you want your parents to be happy. Or your parents, you don't want your parents to get mad. So figure out every du'a you have, make those du'as, but figure out what you're really seeking inside. So I give you two advices on du'as. Figure out what your need is and pray with your need, and try to figure out what your du'a really is. But have the confidence of the du'a of your heart is always answered. Because usually what you're asking is, Ya Allah, help me get through this. Any other last questions? Yes, sir? Is it because of it's, yeah, it's both. Yeah. It's and. Um, could you just briefly like, explain the key in this guy and church misconduct one more time? So, three ways you can have misconduct. One is your relationship with the law. One is your relationship with your relations. And one is your relationship with people or the world in general. If you have misconduct in any of those, you're opening the door for misguidance. Yes? Um, before you mentioned... Um, How does the prophet do that? Yeah. So the prophet is an interesting person because he is himself, he is also his office, he's also his role. And he's it's almost like he's in a different class by himself. So I think it's easy to say that he's capable of doing it without loving himself. I mean, another way to frame it is that he loves everything before you love yourself. And so who does he love more than he loves himself? So, uh, all my male will be pleased come just take a moment and really deeply reflect on it. And you reached it. Any other questions? Okay, if you have any other future questions related to what we've covered or any other questions about life or anything, I'm happy to talk to you and try to talk to you. It's very easy to Google me, just do Muslim Chaplain Loyola, and then you'll find me. That's the easiest way. And uh, inshallah, we can talk about whatever. And you're a good group. And may Allah tell the word you all with the best of this life and the best of the hereafter. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nasafiru kanatu ilayh.
سبحانك اللهم وبحمدك نشهد ان لا اله الا انت نستغفرك ونتوب اليك سبحانك اللهم وبحمدك نشهد ان لا اله الا انت نستغفرك ونتوب اليك واخر دعوانا الحمد لله رب العالمين وتوكل على الله